The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Chapter 12. We continue in our study of Luke's Gospel, looking this morning at verses 13 through 21. Luke records for us these words. He says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's the word of the Lord for us today. Most of you were not alive in the 1950s, though some of you were. But in the 50s, Wrestling was just as popular as it is in some quarters today, and probably just as authentic. But in the midst of the 50s, there was a match that took place that was pretty important. The European champion, a man by the name of Yusuf the Turk, had come to the United States And the match had been billed as a superstar match. Yusuf the Turk was coming to America to fight the American champion Strangler Lewis. I kind of love these names. That had to be a match. Yusuf the Turk versus Strangler Lewis. It was for the world championship. Not just the world championship, but also for a prize purse of $5,000 which was a decent sum for a wrestling match in the 50s. The match took place, and Yusuf the Turk won the match. Yusuf had one stipulation in coming into the match, and that was if he won the match, he would be paid in gold. He won the match. He was paid in gold. The gold he stuffed into his championship belt that he won in the match. 
The money was so important to him and it mattered so much to him that he refused to, to take off his championship belt until he arrived safely at home. The day after the match, he boarded the first ship back across the Atlantic toward Europe. Unfortunately, about halfway across the Atlantic, the ship hit a massive storm and began to founder in the storm, and it began to sink. In panic to get off the ship, Yusuf leapt from the ship toward one of the safety boats, only he missed the boat. And he went straight to the bottom of the ocean. His golden belt became a golden anchor that cost him his life. What a sad story. And yet it is remarkably illustrative of the message Jesus delivers to the crowd on this particular day. The incredible power of money and wealth to become an anchor on our soul and destroy us forever. The Bible has an awful lot to say about money and about possessions. Howard Dayton of Crown Ministries said this. He said, he said that the Bible records about 500 verses on prayer, but over 2,350 on how to handle our money and possessions. It's a pretty remarkable contrast, isn't it? The Bible has more to say about how we handle our money and wealth than it has to say about heaven, hell, and the end times all put together. Why would the Bible speak so much to this issue? Perhaps it's because God knows how much people like us struggle with the reality of managing our wealth and our possessions. Perhaps he knew how much of a competitor those things would be for our affections with him. And so he reminds us over and over and over and delivers message after message after message in his word, instructions, warnings to us about the dangers of mishandling our money and our wealth. In Matthew 6, 21, he sums it up by saying this, Jesus does, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He understands the potential that, that we have for our heart to get wrapped up in our treasure and our treasure to be the thing that determines where our heart is at any given moment rather than God. And so he speaks to the issue over and over and over again in his word. Now, before we get into the text, we need to make a couple of sort of introductory remarks here, and that's just simply to recognize that money and possessions, by and large, are neutral commodities. They're not good. They're not bad. They're not evil in and of themselves. Uh, they're neutral. They're just a medium of exchange. Money by itself really is rather uncomplicated. The problem is not with money. The problem is with, with men and women and our attitudes and our priorities and our perspective toward those things. Jesus summed up the problem really in Matthew 6 when he said this, no one can serve two masters, right? He'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. And there's the rub, isn't it? The problem isn't the money. The problem is that the money competes with God for our affections and we're drawn to serve it rather than to serve him. 
A couple just sort of initial thoughts I just want to throw on the table here before we dive into this and start looking at really the essence of what Jesus is trying to communicate. As I mentioned already, wealth is not inherently evil. There's nothing particularly evil about having money or about having things or about having a home or about having a car or about having some money in the bank. None of that is evil. None of it really, in fact, says anything about a spiritually good or bad. When we look throughout the pages of Scripture, there are some very wealthy individuals who are also very godly individuals, and there are some very poor people who are some very ungodly individuals and vice versa. So wealth in itself isn't inherently evil. And the flip side of that is true. Poverty isn't inherently spiritual. There's nothing particularly spiritual inherent in poverty either. In fact, laziness is a sin and can sometimes be the cause of poverty. So wealth isn't inherently evil and poverty isn't inherently spiritual. The danger is not in the possession of wealth. The danger is in our wealth possessing us. That's where the danger lies. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, let us all be on our guard against the love of money. The world is full of it in our days. The plague is abroad. Thousands who would abhor the idea of worshiping juggernaut are not ashamed to make an idol of gold. We're all liable to the infection, from the least to the greatest. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captive before we're aware of our charms, of our chains, excuse me. Once let it get the mastery, and it will harden, paralyze, scorch, freeze, blight, and wither our souls. It overthrew an apostle of Christ. Let us take heed that it does not overthrow us. One leak may sink a ship. One unmortified sin may ruin a soul. So that's the danger. The danger is not in the amount of wealth we have. The danger is our attitude and our affections toward the wealth. Thomas Watson says it this way. He says, water is useful to the ship. And it helps us to sail better to the haven. But let the water get into the ship. And if it's not pumped out, it drowns the ship. So riches are useful and convenient for our passage. We sail more comfortably with them through the troubles of this world. But if the water gets into the ship, if the love of riches gets into the heart, then we're drowned by them. Two very wise men with two very clear warnings and simple illustrations that make clear what Jesus is communicating in this particular parable and what Luke is is wanting Theophilus and any who read this text to see. Now Jesus has just finished teaching some very difficult things. We've been tracking with this for weeks now. He's been talking about spiritual hypocrisy. He's been going at an issue that was incredibly prevalent in his day. He was challenging the religious establishment, the religious leaders, really to their face and in front of the crowd, exposing their spiritual hypocrisy, the frauds that they were. And he was calling his people to live a life of authentic 
authentic spirituality, authentic faith, to live a life that contrasts with the spiritual hypocrisy that they've seen in the leadership of their religion in their day. And these have been heavy themes, and they've been serious themes, and they should have been incredibly convicting themes to anybody who was listening on these days. And Luke tells us that right on the heels of him teaching these things, there is someone in the crowd who speaks out to Jesus, and he says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It seems like out of the blue, this unnamed person hollers out to Jesus. He doesn't ask a question about what Jesus has been teaching. In fact, he doesn't ask a question at all. He doesn't request Jesus' assistance with anything. He gives Jesus a command. And that's the way that the grammar of the sentence lays out. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. He believes he's getting the short end of the stick. Apparently his father has passed away and there's inheritance on the table and he believes that his brother is not doing him right. His brother's ripping him off. And he wants what he sees as his fair share. And so he wants Jesus to intervene on his behalf. Again, not as a request, but as a command. And you notice he doesn't ask Jesus even to judge the facts of the case. He, he wants him to take his side and to go straighten out his brother. I wonder if his brother was in the crowd. I don't know. But what I do know is family disputes over inheritance is hardly a new thing or hardly an old thing. Boy, have I seen it over and over and over again. As a pastor, you happen to be around quite frequently when people die. And it's amazing to see the kind of turmoil that takes place after someone dies who has something to leave behind. It's amazing to see how people who otherwise normally care for one another can be at each other. In fact, destroy one another over an inheritance. I have a dear friend who I was talking to this week whose mother passed away uh, just a couple of months ago. He's got four siblings. And he was sharing with me the turmoil that has taken place in his family since the passing of his mother. He said, Greg, you just wouldn't believe it. He said, now my youngest sister is suing my oldest sister and the estate because she doesn't like how she's managing it. He said, I would have never dreamed this would happen in my family. Inheritance on the table, money in, the, in play. And here we have brother divided against brother and a brother crying out to Jesus, Jesus, get involved in this thing and get my brother straight because I'm not getting my fair share here. Now, Deuteronomy 15 and Numbers 27 lay out sort of the Old Testament inheritance law, and you can read that on your own when you've got some time. But the bottom line is this. The estate, when someone dies, was to be divided equally among the sons, with the exception that the oldest son got a double portion. So if you have two kids, the estate is split up into thirds, three parts. The oldest son gets two-thirds, and the younger son gets one-third. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe the younger, younger son or the younger brother here feels like it's not right that his brother's getting twice as much as he is. We don't know the details of it, and they're really not particularly all that important. We know enough to understand what's going on. 
And what's really remarkable as you read the, the way this text flows is that what this guy shouts out and what he's asking Jesus to do really has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus has been teaching. Did you notice that disconnect as we're reading it? We're talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, and he's talking about spiritual hypocrisy, and he's been talking about authentic spirituality, some very heavy, serious themes. And this, this joker cries out over a family dispute that has nothing to do with what Jesus has been teaching. Either he hasn't been paying any attention to what Jesus has been teaching, or he frankly doesn't care. He's so consumed with his own situation that he hasn't been even paying attention to what Jesus is talking about. All he can think about is how he's being wronged and how Jesus needs to fix it. And that sounds so sad and pathetic to me, but boy, does it seem pretty close to home. How many times... I've been in a place where God is speaking and my only thoughts are not about what God has to say but about how I feel wronged or how I've been done wrong or how I've been cheated or some problem that I feel like I've got. And that thing so overwhelms my mind that I can't even hear what's being said. Maybe that's your experience sometimes when you come in here on a Sunday morning. Maybe that's your experience when you open up God's word sometime and you go to read in your private time and you want to hear what God has to say to you, but your mind is so clouded with this offense that you can't hear. All you can think about is your own, your own sense of being wronged. Oh, that's this man. Jesus is clearly not willing to get involved with this dispute. He says to him, man, who made you a who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he says it to him in a question. This word man is not exactly the way he addresses him. It's not exactly a cordial response. It's, a, it's quite direct and it's quite emphatic. It isn't warm. It isn't fuzzy. And he asks a question, but his question really is also a statement. He's making it clear to this man that he hasn't come to be the local probate judge. He's come to deal with eternal matters. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to deal primarily with, with eternal matters of the soul. He's come to reconcile men to God, not to dole out the inheritance in a family dispute. In light of the weight of what Jesus has been teaching, what this man brings to the table is petty and it's earthly, and it's temporary, and it's silly. Jesus is concerned about the eternal life of the, of the men and the women in the crowd. He's concerned about them being led astray by the religious leaders of their day to an eternal hell, and all this man can think about is a little bit of money that he thinks he ought to have that he isn't getting. And he wants Jesus to condescend to that level. And Jesus says, no way. I think it's clear beyond that, though, that Jesus knows this man's heart. This isn't just an innocent man being taken advantage of. This man thinks he's got a problem, and his problem is his brother's ripping him off. But Jesus looks into his heart, and he knows he's got a worse problem than that. A far worse problem than that. And it's that problem that Jesus chooses to address. This man thinks he's getting ripped off by his brother, and that's the worst thing going on in his world. But Jesus looks into his heart, and he sees a cancer in his soul. And that cancer has a name, and that cancer 
is called greed. And that is the issue to which Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to address the man included in the crowd. And he addresses it by telling a story. But both this man who cries out and the fictional man in Jesus' parable display for us this morning some principles that you should pay attention to. They're principles for how to die miserable and poor. If you want to know how to die miserable and poor, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do that. And we're going to see it in the life of this man and in the life of a fictional man in Jesus' parable. Jesus' parable and his words expose the foolishness of living by the principles that we're going to see. And at the end, Jesus offers an alternative. An alternative way to live. He begins by issuing a warning. He says, and he said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So in light of this man's greed-infested heart, Jesus issues a warning. It's It's a warning that exposes this man and no doubt exposes the hearts of many others that were gathered in that crowd on that particular day. And it's also a warning that no doubt, if we take it seriously, will expose the hearts of some of us in the room here today. He says, take care. Beware. Pay close attention. Take notice. If you're not careful, this, the problem that this man has, the cancer that this man has, will become a cancer in your soul if you don't take care. Be on guard, he says, on top of that. Be on watch. It means to set a guard. It, it has military sort of connotations to, to set a guard, to set up a watch. Combined with the take care, it serves really as a double warning. This is a a serious matter, Jesus says to the crowd. This is something very serious you need to pay very close attention to, and it's going to require active, proactive action on your part. In fact, if you refuse to take proactive action in this particular area, you will end up just like this man, with the cancer of greed corrupting your soul. The, the, the idea is that somehow everybody in the crowd, including us who read it today, are under attack from greed, and there are some things we have to do to protect ourselves from this enemy. Now, the ESV translates the word covetousness here. The Greek word can be translated multiple ways. I think in the context, greed is the better translation. Greed being an insatiable desire and a lust for more and more wealth and possessions. That's the issue. This idea of a greedy heart, a heart that, that, that pursues constantly more and more money, more and more things. It, 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 it's so all-encompassing in the life that, that really all of life becomes focused on accumulating and gaining and getting and storing more and more and more and more stuff. It's greed. The word at its heart has to do with excess. It has to do with always wanting more beyond what we need. Constantly thinking about, dreaming about, scheming for, planning for the next dollar, the next possession, the next thing. This is a problem for both the haves and the have-nots. Greed is a problem for the wealthy because wealth never satisfies greed. 
The wealthy continue to want more than what they already have, and it's a problem for people who don't have much too because they look to the wealthy and they're envious of that and they want what they don't have. It's the same problem either way. And Jesus says, you better beware of it. You better set a guard around your heart or this cancer called greed will infect you. He says, the reason you ought to be aware is this. He says, in God's economy, men are not defined by their things. When God looks at the world and when God looks at the human heart, when God evaluates people, he doesn't evaluate them in terms of their possessions or their wealth. Now, that's what we do. That's how human beings evaluate each other, right? We look at people and we size them up based on what they have and what their car is like and what their house is like and how much wealth they have. Our whole culture revolves around exalting the rich, The world, even our culture, is filled with poor people that you've never heard their name. But you know who the Kardashians are. And so do I, sadly. Because they're in front of my face every time I pick up, turn on the news. But in God's economy, people aren't defined by their stuff. He's made us for so much more, so much more. He didn't create us just to pursue wealth and to pursue possessions and to see how much stuff we can hoard. He's made us to know him. He's made us to love him. He's made us to to pursue and to live out his will for our lives. He's made us to love him and to love our neighbors and to to pursue the, the, the magnification of the glory of God in the world around us. So many higher goals than just the accumulation of wealth. The Amplified Bible says, translates this passage this way. It says, And he said to them, Guard yourselves and keep free from all covetousness, the immoderate desire for wealth, the greedy longing to have more. For a man's life does not consist in and is not derived from possessing overflowing abundance or that which is over and above his needs. We don't need to belabor the point, right? You get it. You understand this warning. It's crystal clear. There's a real and insidious temptation that you and that I face, and that is to allow our lives to be defined by what we have. To spend the bulk of our time, to spend the bulk of our energy, to spend the the bulk of our affections pursuing more, 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 more money, bigger houses, fancier cars, more extravagant vacations, more, more, more. Our entire culture thrives on greed. It thrives on it. We celebrate the rich. We envy the rich. We follow the rich. Not only is it not condemned, it's encouraged. Every message that you and I have gotten in our culture from childhood is that your life should be consumed with getting more things, bigger things, never to be content, always to pursue more All of social currency, even in our culture, is built off wealth and possessions. Who would care who Elon Musk was if he wasn't rich? Nobody. You understand this temptation, and I understand this temptation. In a real sense, every day of our life, our possessions are trying to possess us. 
And if we're not actively setting a guard around our heart, they will indeed possess us. Now we have very spiritual ways of putting up a veneer and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not me. I don't do that. That's not me. I just have these things, but I can let them go. And they really, I really love God. I don't love all this stuff. I, you know. But you know and I know the attraction our stuff has on our hearts. And if we're not on guard, if we're not watchful, we'll fall right into the materialism and the greed of our culture. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in our day. And so Jesus tells a story, a fictional story. And he lays out for us in the story these principles of how to die poor and miserable, which is exactly what the man in the story does. It's a made-up story to make a spiritual point. But the, the, the main character serves really as a model for us, a mo model for how to die miserable and poor. And if that's how you want to end up, then just do the things that this man did. What are the principles? Here's the first one. If you want to die miserable and poor, never be satisfied with what you have. That's the first principle. Never be satisfied with what you have. We see that in this man in the parable. He told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Immediately we're introduced to a man in the story. And we're told, the very first thing we're told about him is that he is what kind of a man? He's a rich man. Before the crop that he's concerned about at the moment comes in, the man is already rich. He's already wealthy. He already has more than he needs. In fact, he already has so much that we find he's run out of storage. And thus, it puts him in a pickle, doesn't it? He's got so much stuff and that his barns are completely full, and his biggest problem is not how he's going to pay his bills, but he doesn't have any more storage space to store this new bumper crop that's come in. This bumper crop is over and above his already accumulated wealth. He's a very, very rich man. And so he starts to debate internally about what to do with all this excess crop. He has a problem. Too much grain, not enough storage. You see the rub. He already has everything he needs for the present. He's already stored up all that he needs for the future. But now he has a whole crop of excess. And he doesn't have anywhere to put it. What a problem, right? Again, it's a problem that can, get, can sort of hit close to home, can it? Many of us have so much that we don't know where to store it right now. And that's the problem with this man. What do you do when you run out of storage? What do you do when you get extra stuff and you run out, you realize I don't have anywhere to put it? Does the thought ever cross your mind? Does it ever occur to you to stop and ask, why am I accumulating so much stuff? Or does it just seem natural to you to want to add more storage? That's what this man does. He's got plenty for today. He's got plenty for the future. But he isn't content with what he has. He's trying to figure out how he can store more. He's not satisfied with having enough for today. He's not even satisfied with a barn filled with stuff for tomorrow. He wants more. And he's got more. And he's trying to figure out how he can store more so he can grow more. The problem is he's never going to be satisfied with what he has because greed has infested his heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we find these words. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's true. 
spoken by one who knew what it was to be incredibly wealthy. Read Ecclesiastes sometime. Now the note here is just this. Jesus isn't condemning, he's not condemning here sort of responsible saving. He isn't condemning here responsible financial management. He isn't saying it's wrong for us to have money in the bank. He isn't saying it's wrong for us to have a retirement account. He isn't saying that it's inherently wrong to have investments or to have a college fund. What he's condemning is an attitude toward wealth that is never satisfied. An attitude that's always wanting more, that's always pursuing more, that's always trying to gain more, that's never content with what it has. And that's what's marking this man. This insatiable lust for more. It's like the thirsty man who goes to drink and all he can find is salt water and he drinks the salt water and all it does is make him more thirsty. That's what wealth does to a person who's never satisfied. They get more and they're never satisfied with it. It just whets their appetite for more. And part of the reason why this man dies miserable and poor is because he never learned to be satisfied with what he had. Second principle, you want to know how to die miserable and poor? See yourself as the owner rather than the manager of your possessions. It's another characteristic of this man. He sees himself as the owner rather than the manager of his possessions. If you look through it, at least 14 times he uses the word I and my. The whole thing is about him. He's under the mistaken notion that everything he has is his, that it belongs to him, that he's got it by the sweat of his own brow, that he deserves it, that he's earned it, that it all belongs to him. Since it's his land and it's his grain and it's his barns and it's his goods, all of it's his, he can do with it whatever he wants to. There is no sense in his mind or in his worldview whatsoever that in fact he is not the owner of anything, that God is the owner of everything. Somewhere he missed that. He missed Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You get the point? Everything in the world belongs to one individual. Whom is that? Who is that? It's God. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in it belongs to him. He made it. It's his. He's the one who does with it what he wants. He graciously gives us some of his things to enjoy and to manage, but they never really are ours. They're always his. He owns everything. None of it really belongs to us. You realize what you have is a gift from the Lord? It's a gift from the Lord. Everything you have is a gift from the Lord. It's a gracious gift from the Lord. He's given it to you to enjoy. He's given it to you to manage. But he hasn't given it to you to hoard as though it belongs to you. We know this man has this problem also because of the way he uses his pronouns here. He does not think of anybody else's needs, only his own. Now, get the picture. He's rich. He's got everything he needs for now. He's got a barn full of stuff for the future. Think of all the things he could have possibly done with this bumper crop that's come in. What could he have done with that stuff? Like he could have, surely in his day, just like in our day, the land was flooded with people who were poor, right? Who could have used some grain, who could have used some food, who could have used some things that he had in absolute excess. It doesn't even cross his mind to take this excess and to share it with other people who have needs. 
Because it's all his. It's not theirs. Augustine writes this. He says, the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. If he stowed it away in the bellies of the poor, it would of course be digested on earth, but in heaven it would be kept all the more safely. He could, have, he could have taken the increase in his excess and he could have given some more to the support of the work of the ministry in his town. He could have gone to the local priest and he could have said, priest, listen, I know there are needs in the work of God in my city and in the nation abroad. I know there are all sorts of needs out there and God has blessed me beyond measure. He's given me everything I need for today. He's given me plenty in my barn for tomorrow and I've got all this excess. I want to give this to the work of the Lord so that the glory of God may spread across the earth. Never dawns on him. Never one time does he think about it. His only concern is to store up more for himself. And that's what happens when we see ourselves as owners. Everything changes when we realize that we don't own our stuff, that we're managers, that we're stewards, that God has given things to us in order to manage, and he expects us to manage them. But when we understand it's not really ours, it's ours on loan from God, then we hold things a whole lot more loosely. We enjoy the things that he, that he gives us with a, with a grateful heart. And we're happy and joyful to give some of what he's given us to bless other people. Because we know it isn't ours to begin with. It's the Lord's. He's given it to us. And he's given us more than what we need. And we find somebody else who has a need. It's our joy to give it to them. And to be a conduit through which God sort of funnels his resources to people who need it. When we see ourselves as managers rather than owners, we, we, we find joy in seeing other people benefit from the surplus God's given us. And our world isn't rocked when he decides to take some of the things away that he had previously given. This man has no clue of this. He sees himself as an owner rather than a manager. And because of that, he's hoarding everything and he can only think about himself. His life is about his stuff. And it's one of the reasons he dies miserable and poor. But there's another principle here. If you want to know how to die miserable and poor, pursue a selfish, self-indulgent lifestyle. He does that too. Why is this man doing all this? Well, we get a glimpse into it. He says to his own soul, I love this. He has a little conversation with himself. And I have told you before, my wife teases me all the time because she catches me talking to myself all the time. She sees my lip moving and she says, what, who are you talking to? And I say, the most interesting person I know, I'm talking to me. I mean, that's who I'm talking to. No, I don't really say that. I bet this guy was saying that, though. He says to himself, self, you've got so much stuff. I've got ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We see the drive of this man's heart, right? His goal in life is to accumulate so much stuff that he doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is relax and indulge. It's a completely selfish, self-indulgent goal. His highest goal in his life is to eat, drink, and be merry. He has no higher ambition than personal pleasure. God is irrelevant. Others are irrelevant. All that matters is catering to himself and his own pleasures. I get so much that all I have to do is sit back and relax and eat lavish meals, find the next fun thing to go do, take the next vacation, get the next possession. That's it. 
completely selfish, self-indulgent lifestyle. The problem is he's making a very foolish assumption. And his foolish assumption underneath that goal of life is that he believes he's guaranteed to live long enough to enjoy all that and to live that way. And we find in the story what he doesn't know. He thought his money was his security for the future. But he's soon going to find out that his life is much shorter than he planned. He will never retire, and he will never enjoy that self-indulgent pursuit that he's lived for his whole life. What a sad and pathetic picture this is. The person who spends their entire life accumulating things, sacrificing family, sacrificing relationships, sacrificing their relationship with the Lord, sacrificing things that really matter to accumulate wealth in order to enjoy it in their retirement years, only to find out that they die before they could ever enjoy it. What a sad and pathetic life. It makes the whole pursuit really absolutely meaningless, right? When you live your life for all that stuff and then you never live long enough to enjoy it. What have you done? That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy this, chapter 6, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. You want to die miserable and poor? Live your life for your own selfish, self-indulgent goals. Last one here. You want to die miserable and poor? Take credit for your own success and lack genuine gratitude. We see that in this man too, don't we? We see that. This man is, is rich because we're told right at the very beginning that his land is produced plentifully. God is given no credit for his role in this man's life. This man is rich because his land is produced. For land to produce, a lot of things have to happen. Right? Rain has to come and fall on the land. Sunshine has to come and shine on the crops. And the crops have to raise up to be good crops. God is responsible for all that. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. But this man gives God no credit. He takes complete credit for his own success. He shows no genuine gratitude to the Lord. He gives God no credit. He gives him no thanksgiving. In fact, he doesn't even give him thoughts. He doesn't even realize that it's God who's responsible for the fertile soil. It's God who's responsible for the sunshine. It's God who's responsible for the rain. It's God who's responsible for the crop. Never once has he stopped to give thanks. Never once has he stopped to look up and be grateful. He's taking credit for his own success, and he has no sense of gratitude to God. His life is lived completely horizontal, and he's really impressed with himself, and he thinks he's responsible for his wealth. What a fool. If you want to die miserable, miserable and poor, just do those things right there. Maybe you're doing those things right now. Well, you're not dead yet. Some of you kind of look like you're on the verge right now, but I think you're just sleepy. There's still time. These are the principles that precisely how this rich man lived. 
He's clearly proud of his accumulation of wealth. He's clearly the envy of all of his neighbors. He set himself up for a life of leisure and indulgence. But we're going to see real quickly here at the end that God is not even remotely impressed with this man's life. In fact, in verse 20, we see God's judgment. We get this parable, the story you're told about this man, and then you have this phrase, but God said. And it's kind of like a thunderbolt in the middle of it. God said, you fool. You're a fool. This night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? You've lived a life completely oblivious to me, and that makes you the biggest fool of all. The world might envy you, but you're a fool. You might be proud of yourself, but you're a fool. And it's a reminder to us all that our own assessment of ourselves isn't what matters. That our neighbor's assessment of our lives isn't what matters. That it's only God's assessment of our life that really matters. And one day we'll all give an account to him for how we've lived. And when that day comes, the last thing you want to hear from God's mouth is what this man heard. You fool. You've lived the life of a fool. J.C. Ryle says this, thousands in every age of the world have lived continually doing the very things which are condemned here. Thousands are doing them at this very day. They're laying up treasure upon earth and thinking of nothing but how to increase it. They're continually adding to their hordes as if they were to enjoy them forever and as if there was no death and no judgment and no world to come. And yet these are the men who were called clever and prudent and wise. These are the men who are commended and flattered and held up to admiration. Truly the Lord seeth not as man seeth. The Lord declares that rich men who live only for this world are fools. God's assessment is you're a fool. God's judgment is to this man, your soul is required of you tonight. Required is terminology of a banker calling in a loan. Your life is on loan from God and God's calling the loan in right now, tonight. Your life is over. And then God's question, what, what good is all this stuff you've stored up? You know, all this stuff in the barns and that bumper crop? What good is it to you now? You're going to die. You're going to die. And then he ends with sort of this application. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a stunning story he tells in response to this man's request to get involved in an inheritance dispute. He exposes the man's greedy heart and he lets everybody there know what happens when you live by the world's standards. When you embrace greed, you die a miserable, poor fool. Oh, you may have lots of wealth in the world's eyes, but when you're dead, who cares? It's not yours anymore. 
If you're to read Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, I've accumulated all this wealth, more wealth than anybody in the world in my time. I've accumulated it all. And you know what my conclusion is? It's all vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. It's a worthless pursuit. I realize that what's going to happen is I'm going to die just like the poorest man in town. And when I die, we're going to be in the same shape. Whatever I've accumulated is going to go to kids who didn't earn it, who don't appreciate it, and who'll probably squander it. What a waste. what happens to those who live their life with greed. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, it's basically the opposite of all those principles, right? You want to live a life that's joyful and die joyful and rich? The opposite principles apply. How do you do that? Will you be content with what God's given you? Recognize that God knows what you need and he'll give you what you need. He's promised that. Remember the sparrows and all the stuff we've already talked about? He knows your needs. He knows your kids need to go to college. He knows you need to have resources in your retirement years. He's going to supply you with all the things that you need. Be content with what you've got. Stop trying to live for more all the time. Be content with what you've given. See yourself as a manager and not the owner. Recognize that God's given you all this stuff and whatever you have is his and he has the right to give it and he has the right to take it away. He's called you to to be the one who manages these things in a way that honors him and sometimes he's going to use you as a conduit through which to bless other people with surplus and excess and what a joy that is. You want to die joyful and rich? Live selfless, kingdom-minded life. Instead of trying to store up for some some supposed future life of indulgent luxury. Maybe you think about it. What do I need absolutely to live? And then how can I take the maximum amount possible to invest in the kingdom of God and to bless other people? It's more blessed to give than to receive. I read that somewhere. Finally, be filled with gratitude for God's provision. Recognize that whatever you have is a gift from the Lord and be thankful. Be genuinely thankful. Greed does not grow in the soil of gratitude. It doesn't. Greed can't grow in the soil of gratitude. A thankful heart, a heart that is overflowing with gratitude to God for what he or she has, leaves no room for greed. Well, there you have the contrast. And the reality is, one day you're going to die, and I'm going to die, and we're going to stand in judgment. The parable was about a fictional man. He never really lived, so he never really stood in judgment. But the man who brought the the concern to begin with was going to have that happen. So was everybody else in that crowd, and so was everybody in this crowd. And when it comes to this area of wealth and possessions, what are we going to hear the Lord say to us about how we've managed this part of our life? He's going to say, you fool. Or is he going to say, well done? Well done. I don't know about you, but this is a convicting text. If you take it the way our scripture reading for today calls us to take it, to look in the mirror and to be a doer of it, not just a hearer of it. But if you look closely into the mirror of this text, you're going to see a reflection of yourself, as I do. And you're going to realize the incredible attraction of greed in your heart. And if you and I don't put a guard up and we don't proactively take steps against it, 
it will corrupt our soul like it did this man. So what do you think about it? What about your life? How are you living? How are you managing these things? Are you selfishly hoarding your stuff? Do you have what you need or are you accumulating just piles of things you'll never use? Is it easy for you to give away stuff so that others can enjoy it? Or is that hard and painful? Maybe a better question for us all to ask our own selves and maybe as a family to talk about is this. How much is enough? Like, what constitutes enough for us? Where do we draw the line that says, this is all we need? I don't need any more than this. We could be content here if God doesn't give us another thing. Where is that line for you? I can't tell you where it is for your life, but the Spirit of God can let you know if you ask Him. If you seek him, you'll find him and he'll tell you. Maybe the challenge is that that's where we leave it today. That we leave contemplating that question, how much is enough? How big do our barns need to be? At what point do we say, that's enough, whatever's left, I'm giving away. I'm using for the kingdom of God. I'm finding somebody who can use it. Oh, that God would help us to see that clearly. I know that he would help us to have joy in living a life free from the cancer of greed. Let's pray. God, there, there is a part of our hearts, I know it because I feel it, that wants to do, that wants to look in the mirror and walk away and forget what we've read and heard today. It's like James talked about. Because this hurts. This hurts. And it's really close to home. We live in the wealthiest nation in the world. We live among the wealthiest people in the world. We have so much stuff. So much stuff. So many things we think we need that we don't need. But we love our stuff. And we're drawn to more stuff. And we're surrounded by a culture that celebrates greed. That exalts greed. That makes you feel like a fool if you're not pursuing more. And we need your help. We need your help to put a guard around our hearts. We need your help to see where the roots of this cancer finds itself in our life. We'll never admit it on our own. But we pray that by your spirit, you'd open our eyes. That you generate good conversation in our homes about what constitutes enough. That you might perform surgery on this cancer if it's in our hearts. Remove it. We don't want to die miserable and poor. We want to die eternally rich with treasure stored up in heaven, with joy in our hearts because we've been a conduit for your resources to a world that needs you. Help us to do this, Lord, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.